If I can validate that this is the earliest interstellar object, that's a big deal in itself, and that would be, for me, almost like a, a career maker, right? The conservative position would be to establish that this is an anomalous object that was interstellar, or well, even that it didn't hit the Earth. If, if you can establish that it didn't hit the Earth, that's one of the biggest geological mysteries for 160 years, solved, right? So first, that's a nice tick. If it can then be shown that it's almost certainly an interstellar object, that's a lovely big tick on my work. Um, and if then people are interested and ask me, what do I think it was? I'm in a much better position to say, well, you know, my view is probably an alien technology. You are listening to the Spectral Skull Session. Tales from the twilight world of myth, mystery, and imagination. The idea behind this podcast is that we explore claims about the occult, supernatural, and paranormal from an analytical standpoint. We're open to the existence of a world beyond the five senses, and we dismiss that dogmatic skepticism that insists that any story about the unexplained has to reduce to hallucinations or swamp gas. But we're not committed to any particular theory or philosophy about what the paranormal is, and we realize that, whatever is out there, the answer is likely to be more complicated than any existing model or theory. What we bring to the table is small s skepticism, a skepticism that we throw as much on the mainstream accounts as we do on the supernatural story. Okay, let's get started. Good morning or good evening, everyone. Today we have a special interview with Bruce R. Fenton, author of Exogenesis Hybrid Humans, A Scientific History of Extraterrestrial Genetic Manipulation. Bruce Fenton is a British multidisciplinary scientific researcher and media personality. He curates the popular paleoanthropology website ancientnews.net. His TV appearances include the Science and History channels. And of course, his latest book is available on Amazon. Welcome to the show, Bruce. Thank you very much. Uh, appreciate the invite and uh, you know, appreciate you taking some time to look at the book and write a book review as well. Uh, not everyone does. Often you don't get any feedback, so uh, that's really cool of you. Well, thank you for writing the book. As I said in the last episode of this show, uh, I really laud anyone who's willing to work on the Intelligent Design Research Project, the broad set of hypotheses that say that something intervened beyond evolution in human history. And I'm interested to see where that might go. I was wondering if you might start off by summarizing uh, the main claims of exogenesis. For those of our audience who maybe didn't hear the last show, or just maybe you disagree with the way I uh, summarize the arguments there. Sure. I mean, as, as you sort of pointed out previously, I mean, the, the first part of the book um, gives a bit of an overview of topics like the current UFO, UAP, you know, anomalous craft kind of um, media furor, I suppose we could call it. You know, there's been an uptick in interest in that subject area. So, I, you know, I go a little bit into the uh, the Lua Elizondo, TTSA and, you know, other uh, current events or recent events of, I suppose, ufology. Uh, also tackle some of the the history of the SETI kind of research, the SETI foundations, sorry, the SETI Institute's um, attempts to see if there's anyone out there, with, particularly with radio waves and the issues around that, and also the biases that some scientists have. You know, I 
go a little bit into that. Um, also talk about some personal experiences. As you know, we talk about some of my, what I suppose we'd call UFO experiences. I, I In the book, I don't really call them that. I mean, I, I refer to anomalous aerial uh, vehicles, anomalous aerial phenomena, because um, I do that quite deliberately to distinguish from the very vague catch-all of UFO, um, because as I'm sure you appreciate, a UFO can be a balloon, uh, you know, a bird, satellite, you know, it's, it's one of these catch-alls. So anything that someone sees in the sky that they can't immediately recognize is essentially a UFO for them. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of careful in the book to uh, focus on those things people see which are anomalous. And so I talk about having seen some anomalous area vehicles myself and, and those objects that exhibit something anomalous, i.e. what I saw seem to be teleporting around the sky. So, I mean, that's when I say about something anomalous and why they would be different. Um, there should be a characteristic there that is extraordinary. So I talk a bit about that. Uh, also, we, you know, I do delve into the, the psychical and the kind of paraphysical. Uh, both myself and my wife have had various experiences which fall under that domain. Uh, so that's not necessarily uh, important to the the core of the book and I know you touched on this a bit that some of my experiences seem linked to that I had one experience which did seem to be a kind of visionary experience where I uh, had some kind of experience of being either being a being or seeing a being who seemed to be linked to this story which we'll come to in a minute and that was uh, back in 2002 so I'd had an experience which I will explain a little bit more detail why but there was essentially it was in a in a craft it was coming to earth uh, there was an awareness there'd been some kind of an attack um, and that's so why you know I talk a bit about that in the book I mentioned I've had this experience and it's one of the reasons why I became interested in a narrative that I read in the book Alcharinga when the first ancestors were created by a lady called Valerie Barrow that it was one of the reasons that that story kind of leapt down to me so I'd had this kind of uh, paranormal type experience you know visionary experience uh, that seemed to at least on the face of it, correspond to some of the elements in that book. Uh, Exogenesis, yeah, then kind of pivots a bit into the work of um, Valerie's kind of, uh, I suppose, her summaries of what happened to her after an encounter with an Aboriginal sacred artifact called a Chiringa. Uh, and then she had a kind of, well, I suppose, a, a communication with a non-physical intelligence, although you could suppose say maybe it's physical if it was actually this object. Um, but it seemed to be, you know, some kind of otherworldly presence that was associated with the object, uh, that it detailed a story in her mind, you know, kind of what we call voice to skull transfer is what I kind of call it that there's some kind of transfer of information suggesting that there had been a contact event in remote prehistory hundreds of thousands of years ago. Uh, there was quite a lot of detail in her book uh, that suggested, you know, that there could be uh, the potential to look for corresponding real-world events. And that's what appealed to me about this, was that A, yes, on a personal level, I felt that there was potentially truth to this because of, you know, things that I'd had it happen. Um, but the reason to write the book was that there was, in my mind, there was potential to see if there was anything that validated this. And if there was, then that seemed worthy to share with others, you know, in a, in a more detailed analysis rather than just this story form, which Alcharinga is in. It doesn't make an attempt to say you should believe this. You know, in fact, she sort of says at the end, really, that, you know, she's not really trying to convince anyone um, that if they feel it's true you know great kind of thing so she sort of makes a note at the end saying that so the, there's no real attempt in that book to say you know you should believe this absolutely could i could i ask about that um 
just to get clear for the audience too, she had she had a revelation which she takes to have come from an extraterrestrial intelligence after encountering, um, you said it was a sacred stone? Yeah, they're called Chiringa stones. So usually, certainly the, the there's, there's various types of these, but they're usually a, a kind of a handheld either stone, or in some cases <clears throat> a wooden artifact, often kind of oval-shaped. Some of them are, are longer than that. They're kind of elongated ovals. Um, and they will typically have symbols on them, you know, either spirals, concentric circles, um, and other kind of you know, wavy lines. And so they, they have some meaningful symbols on them, which, again, you know, uh, kind of from Aboriginal esoteric kind of sacred law, they have meanings. Um, so there's there's various sort of copies of these, more recent, but even in the Aboriginal law, they say that there are some of these which are from the creation time. They go right back to the beginning when the first humans were created, and a lot of the animals were created, features of the landscape. So some of these are said to be from this Alcharinga time, and that they are associated with Alcharinga beings. And in fact, in this law, these, some of these Alcharinga beings apparently transformed themselves into these Chiringas because these would persist through time, almost unchanged, and would allow them to be a kind of receptacles of this intelligence, this consciousness from these Alcharinga beings, and that it would be able to remain here on Earth and interact or, you know, in some way, uh, interact with the Aboriginal elders. It seems mostly it's um, high elders that would actually, you know, come into contact with these the rest of the time they're kind of they're really sacred so they're hidden away they're only brought out in ceremonial settings and only handled by the highest kind of initiated elders so there's a whole you know mythology or law around these things uh, that kind of corresponds to the experience she had in that it would be considered not extraordinary by those elders that this object would be associated with a non-human intelligence that could share information so that in itself is a kind of an interesting correspondence of course that doesn't mean it's real but it's an interesting fact of that uh, aboriginal law that that's what these things are supposedly able to do that's that's very interesting so uh do you think the alcharinga story is important then to understand in order to understand what you were doing with your book uh, yes i would have to say so because although now i could make a case for some well i do i make this case that for some standalone arguments around certain elements from the book you know in exogenesis you know i do tie it quite strongly to Alcharinga and to, to valerie's work and to uh, some of the other people she was connected with particularly um i mentioned jerry bostock who was an aboriginal elder that was very much involved in what happened with valerie you know was um, in fact took her to some sacred sites and they had experiences together so you know there's other characters so i mean i i link it a lot in there but i, I now could you know i do try and make a case without necessarily delving too much into the anecdotal uh, backstory because you know the way i look at it if this is you know describing a real contact event and with some physical elements which you know we'll get to that some of these should i believe in themselves be kind of extraordinary without necessarily saying well there's this story uh, which is you know really weird uh, with multiple witnesses who claim this thing happened because you know i accept that you know even multiple witnesses can be wrong multiple witnesses can be deluded multiple witnesses could concoct just you know that you know these we have to accept in terms of scientific terms you know that's the position that you know you have to take 
if you're going to employ the kind of scientific method, um, which, you know, I don't necessarily go too into in exogenesis, but I am doing that separately. And I know today, obviously, we have a chance to talk about that. Um, but yes, yeah, so it was very important to, to getting me interested in this and to ever looking into half the stuff. To be honest, many of the things in that story I'd never heard of um, in terms of, you know, this object breaking up and there being potentially this material, you know, so looking for that material. Um, and also this, there was talk of a, a multi-directional asteroid bombardment. You know, I'd never heard of that. So, you know, it, it got me looking for things that I personally wasn't aware of. And that, so to then find that there was correspondence to some of these out there in the geological record was amazing. So, yeah, I, I honestly don't think I would have stumbled on um, a lot of this sort of strangeness um, without that initial book. So it definitely was important. Yeah, so do you want to summarize the uh, main points from Alcharinga that you set out to find empirical uh, justification for? Yeah, certainly. So there was really, there's, I suppose, three key elements. There is the description of a very large, kind of a vast uh, living craft, so an AI intelligence uh, silica craft, so almost like a, um, if we can imagine, a, a giant silica network, which is something that's theorized by some of the sort of cutting edge um, scientific thinkers of today, the idea that, you know, we may create giant silicon networks. But so it's described as being a craft that's kind of alive, but there is also a crew on board. And, you know, at least in the story, there's about 50,000 people, allegedly. And so these beings come to Earth. There is an agreement that Earth is going to be handed over for some other group that's already here. There's some kind of exopolitics thing going on. Uh, but there is a betrayal. The ship is allegedly destroyed in space and melts simply melts and rains down there's a kind of description of that happening and then so i thought well that's one big event you know if there was this giant silica craft and if it you know really was blown up in orbit and rained down you know maybe there could be some debris from that that could be you know uh, detected in the geological records perhaps um, then the other the other parts of this then it was said that five years after this there is this kind of a follow-up mission by an associated group of another group of beings who then kind of acting as police but they warn this other group that you know you should have not attacked the ship and you, you'd agree to leave the planet so now you've got to leave and uh, most of them apparently do but some don't and then they say so they pull in asteroids and bombard some underground facilities that are on this planet so I mean that's quite an extraordinary claim so I thought well you know that should have some kind of lasting effects you know i've never heard of anything like that certainly not since the kind of the late heavy bombardment you know the kind of formative periods of earth's history um that normally we don't see like large multi-directional bombardments so that's quite extraordinary and then the third aspect was this claim that some of the survivors had re-engineered kind of engineered the early homo sapiens ancestors from some existing hominins so i think well Again, that, although in some ways more more difficult to prove than perhaps the other two, being that um, genetics, you know, is a kind of, is a, an area with a greater fluidity in itself, because of course, you know, we change, beings change, DNA is constantly evolving. So obviously there's a an additional difficulty in there that, you know, geological events, they don't go on changing. You know, I mean, they, if they happen, they leave some sort of marker and you can look for that. Um, DNA is complex because it's already changing. So, I mean, I've had to look for uh, whether or not there was anything particularly extraordinary that might have been happening you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago that corresponded to the timing of these other events, if they were real. Um, so those were the three big ones, really. Uh, and that's um, and that's what I concentrated on. 
and felt that I came to a point where I was quite um, confident that all three of those really existed in you know in the scientific records that we already have. You know, I didn't really you know I don't do any uh, direct like investigation. You know, I'm not an archaeologist. I'm not a geologist. I'm not a geneticist. So I you know I don't go out and dig for anything or look for any um, debris you know. so th- everything I do is going through the existing academic records to see whether there's correspondence very good by the way d- do we have a name for the entity that spoke to Valerie Barrow it called itself Alcharinga and again in, in the aboriginal law that would fit that these beings were referred to as Alcharinga beings okay so are you comfortable with calling it that the Alcharinga narrative or the Alcharinga mm-hmm. hypothesis yeah, so that, certainly. Yeah, that these three things happened. So that and you went out and you say you found um, you found what you think to be a good match for the uh, the remains of that starship that exploded the uh, the Rexagena. Is that correct? Yeah, I did. I mean, one of the interesting points here as well is that in in Valerie's book, she has this kind of conviction that the debris from the ship is Moldavite, which is a it's a really interesting kind of you know. Tektite from Moldavia, hence uh, Moldavite. Uh, there's a, there's a, essentially a large crater, the, the Rees Crater, that has been kind of associated with this green, almost emerald-looking stone. Now, it's, it's widely accepted that this stone was created in a kind of a cosmic event. You know, there was, uh, the, the current conventional view is that there was some kind of uh, hypervelocity impact and ejected this unique material. Now, one thing to trap Moldavite is it is totally unique. We don't see anything else like that, you know, in the geological records anywhere else. Um, it's, uh, it's been associated with such things as the Grail Stone and the, the Emerald Tablets. There's a lot of mythology around Moldavite that it's, it's very special. And indeed, if you go into the kind of the, I guess, the spiritual paranormal world, there's a, uh, there's, you'll find there's lots of claims of people saying that they hold this stuff and they have really extraordinary experiences. So it's an interesting stone. I can, I can definitely see... Um, how that would have appealed you know if you're looking for something that kind of fitted this story that you know so if you've had this experience you know whether she's had this experience uh, in a very vivid way or some sort of metaphysical way but you know she feels she's had this experience and then is looking for a stone you know or something that might fit this Moldavite you know definitely with its mythology already in place uh, makes a lot of sense but when I was looking at that I, I just I couldn't see how that would fit because Moldavite is really old you go you know it's uh, millions and millions of years old so at least conventional understanding okay if it was somehow alien material maybe there's you know a protracted strange physics answer for why debris from an alien ship might be dated wrong right but you know I, I had to kind of limit myself to like what would what could I comfortably ask people to believe considering how extraordinary the whole thing is right so if i then say you know you've got to accept that say a hundred million year old moldavite is only 700 something thousand years old you know then you because alcharinga told valerie that this event happened less than um uh, a million years ago correct yeah yeah in a couple of different places she's less than a million and somewhere else she mentions 700 and then somewhere else 900 so somewhere in that period where and i think the way she's put it is in one way is it in our time, our way of looking at time, it being 900 or so, in their way of looking at seven. So, you know, there is some confusion in there. And that's one reason why I looked. I thought, well, you know, it seems to be somewhere in that 700 to a, a hundred, you know, to a million is what is what comes up in her website and the book. So there is some, some vagueness there. So I'm thinking, well, okay, well, is there anything like that 
in the period from 700 to a million that would fit and not where you'd have, you know, one of these events at 800, one at a million, one at 700, because that's just cherry picking, right? So there would have to be a point somewhere in that range where all of these events correspond accurately in the same time. And that was another thing that I was kind of a stickler for because, you know, otherwise really if you're having to sort of, you know, crowbar in separate events into into the narrative, then, you know, you've, you've kind of, <laughs> gone wrong right yeah so on the basis of all Turinga's uh, message you thought the initial explosion the asteroid bombardment and the engineering of humans would have all taken place within like 10,000 years or smaller range I, I would I would expect them to be you know really within years of each other but the one of the problems of course we have with when you get to geological dating is there is a margin of error on either side you know no matter which type of dating method you use you know they're, they're never going to be down to a year you know so i would expect these events to be in terms of the scientific dating to be you know very close maybe a few thousand years or so apart just because our dating methods don't allow that kind of pinpoint accuracy right. um, but you wouldn't expect it to be um you know 50,000 years apart or something, you know. Um, so it has to be a reasonable let margin of difference between the events. Um, so, yeah, I mean, th there is some allowance for that. But, yeah, I, I wouldn't have considered it as being valid to find, you know, one event at 800,000 and one at 900 and say, okay, we've got a bit of error, you know, because that's quite a lot of error. And, you know, the dating methods aren't that vague. Um, and so what I found was that, yeah, the, the things that I've identified, you know, give us this debris which is dated for around the most accurate dating is 788,000 years. The the impacts that I've I believe are associated the multi-directional impacts they're dated at between 770 to 790,000 um, and the genetic changes which I believe are crucial to begin with Homo sapiens. There's some vagueness there, but you know depending on who you look at and which studies you're looking at, it seems to be at a point where the majority of geneticists see that as having happened somewhere in the 700 to 800,000 years ago um, with the crucial kind of changes that led to Homo sapiens. I mean, I, I look at Denisovans, Neanderthals and us as all um, subspecies of Homo sapiens. But if you, if you want to look at them separately, that's fine. So if you look at Homo sapiens, Denisovans, Neanderthals, you know, we kind of diverge around about this 700 to 800,000 years ago. Now, there's always going to be some people who say this a little bit out, but that's going to be the majority of geneticists and anthropologists kind of at this point would agree it's around there. So these events are all corresponding quite nicely. And particularly if you drill down into some of these changes, um, they actually suggest very close to 800,000. And so that would put that within that margin of error because of you know the vagaries of dating genetic changes which again which is more so than the, the geological changes in some ways uh, and again that's a fairly recent shift because until about four or five years ago it was believed that um, we actually diverged from Neanderthals closer to about 400,000 years ago right so for example when Valley was writing this book and I know this is something you touch on which is you know I think it's very valid that people should touch on is you know could someone be informed before writing the story you know say well there's really interesting information out there you know hey let's make a story of it and it's quite interesting because you know at the time that the book came out back in 2002 this was just not 
accept that would not have been accepted at all the idea that we were diverging close to you know 800,000 years ago that that was that had been really seen as just totally you know wild totally a wild suggestion that it was you know it was much closer to 400,000 and now and also of course I should add as well the multi-directional bombardment data that wasn't found until 2016 a team discovered that that was there really had been a multi-directional bombardment around that time um so i think that's important because of course yeah otherwise you have to wonder don't you can someone have read this stuff and written that uh, which i you know i had to think of as well and they just it just wasn't possible because that was not known so it's really interesting you start to think actually this is kind of um, being quite prescient even if you see it's guesswork kind of prescient guesswork that it's turned out that yes there were corresponding events like this at the same kind of time long ago unknown to science until more recently that's very good yes so she is unlikely to have been able to have mm-hmm. pieced the story together around the scientific evidence that was available to her at the time the book was publicly published exactly and the other thing there just to mention of course is that as I, as I said she had a preference for moldavite which i don't agree with i uh, say it's australite so she doesn't mention australite at all so why, why do you think australite is the better candidate for the the remains of the rexagena well there's several reasons i mean first of all if you go back to the big well the australite mystery and it is sort of a mystery you know it goes back well you could say it goes back hundreds of years but i mean in terms of strong kind of scientific investigation goes back about 160 years and it, one of the first kind of scientific articles on it was actually written by Charles Darwin which is quite fascinating he was given some pieces of Australasian tektite whilst he was in Australia and he wrote uh, an article detailing them saying that he thought that they were volcanic bombs that there'd been you know and a significant volcanic eruption and they'd had thrown these um, you know, volcanic glasses out into the air and they'd been sort of somewhat shaped by uh, you know their passage through the atmosphere and that that's what they were and then from then on there'd been a few different debates around how these had formed Um, but what really kind of starts to swing it is when the the NASA engineers and NASA scientists kind of got involved with this back in the I think about the 40s well the 50s they really there was a number of them got quite seriously involved uh, and they highlighted that certainly the Australasian tectites had some morphologies really these tectite buttons which clearly indicate that they had a passage above the atmosphere and entered into our atmosphere and these are shaped uh, aerodynamically shaped they look rather like nose cones of a rocket Uh, and that's because of course you know rockets are designed to pass through that upper atmosphere uh, so that's not coincidental uh, and in fact, they, NASA was quite interested in these Australites for that reason, because you can see they've been shaped by those forces. So to, to study them and to look at their aerodynamics is actually quite useful. Um, so they realized that these had to have had a passage through the upper atmosphere. Now, that leads to some kind of uh, some, some fairly complexities. But basically, they realized that you have these glassy objects, which are very homogenous and very well fined so you know if you take all of the different Australasian tectites across this vast what's called strewn field which stretches 
10,000 kilometers from southern China down to Antarctica and you know eastward westward sort of goes out to Madagascar and then out beyond Papua into the ocean so this vast strewn field is about 10 to 20 percent of the earth's surface uh, that if you, um, you you take any of these pieces and compare them they're very similar in their chemical and isotopic composition so that's we say they're, they're very homogenous and then on top of that they are very well fined and for people that are familiar with the glass making process we fine glasses so you don't just get some sand melt it and you know the glass is ready you, you keep it in the crucible you know you process it you heat it at a certain temperature that allows various gases and stuff to be released and it allows for that mixing and so you end up with a very well fined glass product and that's what we use for all of our tableware right so that has a, a this elongated heating process uh, and this is seen also in the australasian tectites and so these nasa guys are like well hang on a minute this is a problem because you know the other argument here is that these could be from an impact now we'll get a bit more into that but so in an impact you have a very rapid heating you know high pressure event but it's very quick uh, it's, it's almost identical to nuclear explosions and that's what we have and if you look at melt glass from nuclear tests and you look at melt glass from impacts they're very similar because they've been formed in essentially almost identical types of events so a very high energy high pressure short-lived event and you get this uh, very foamy glasses and so that is they are they're full of bubbles they're also they still got a lot of the volatiles in them that hasn't been able to bubble out uh, they contain organics like soil and stuff that's been frozen into them they also have a lot of part melt so pieces of stone that were partially melted or stone that is not melted which has been enclosed in the glass uh, and those are found typically in the crater and around the crater edge uh, sometimes up to a couple hundred kilometers or so away from the crater but they're very very much linked to the crater you know, chemically isotopically they're pretty much identical to the material in the crater all very straightforward it makes sense all very straightforward the the problem with um these australasian tectites is they're not like that so you now have this problem that they're actually much more like volcanic glasses and man-made glasses and that's why uh, darwin and others you know back in the past thought that they must be volcanic and in fact, some of the NASA guys, they also thought that. But they thought, well, hang on. If they've come from space and they're a volcanic glass, where can they have come from? And so they settled on the moon. They thought, well, you know, maybe there was a, a lunar volcano that had, you know, in its caldera had processed some of this like silica material. It's mostly silica. It's like 70% silica uh, with other you know, metals and all sorts in there. But that this volcano had heated this material in a, in a caldera and that then later on, an asteroid had hit the moon and that this material had then been blasted into space and had traveled from the moon to earth and then coming in through our upper atmosphere it comes in at really fast like about 10 kilometers a second you know almost at the, the speeds to leave earth you know gravity so i mean that's like really colossal speeds the kind of speeds you'd see something coming in from space and so they they're like well hang on so these objects have to travel from the moon they've come in they've bounced and they also there's evidence they've bounced along the edge of the the earth's atmosphere because you've got bubbles that are basically expanded and popped and have stretched and stuff. so it looks like they've, they've gone in and out of the atmosphere a bit and then they've come down at these quite gentle angles and that's allowed for time for them to have this secondary melting so you have that's where you get this shaping of them in button shaped right that that can only happen at these almost at these angles almost horizontal to the plane of the earth right because if if you imagine uh, when meteorites come down right they, they come down usually at very sharp angles and very fast and, and what happens is the outer layer of the meteorite is superheated it liquefies and it evaporates 
but they come down so fast that basically that bit evaporates off and you just get this solid core which lands on the ground right there's no aerodynamic shaping it is too fast right it's too hot so hold on so these these things when you say they're flanged they're shaped kind of like frisbees right with like a fat middle and then the outer part's like a donut that together makes them kind of like a frisbee or a flying saucer type shape is that correct yeah that the ones with this that kind of yeah, flying saucer shape this kind of domed shape, those yeah those are the ones that have come down through the upper atmosphere and, they, they, and i say that they have to have come in almost horizontal to the plane of the earth for this to happen so again that was really a key point because these NASA guys are like well how can that happen so therefore they, they calculated a certain angle from a certain crater on the moon and they concluded that yes that could allow for this debris to come in and bounce along the atmosphere and then come in at these angles because if it comes in you know if this was just stuff coming in from uh, typically from deep space in the way that other asteroids and meteorites come in yeah they would come in at these angles and it, it would just superheat the edges and it would just melt off that's why you don't see this shaping anywhere ever on the planet else right and you think about it we've had all these meteorites comets and stuff that have, have hit and we do not see any of the debris shaped as these buttons right so straight away you've got something strange there because we have 4.5 billion years of, of history of objects coming in and none of them exhibit debris with that shaping so so they knew there was something extraordinary here and so that's why they were kind of you know, have to come up with these kind of exotic solutions of lunar volcanoes and things breaking off. Um, so, so what happened in the end, and there's sort of more to it, but what happened in the end was basically after the lunar missions, material was brought back and there was testing was done. And it turned out lunar, well, there's two things, lunar rock and lunar material didn't have the right levels of silica and some of the other chemicals, right? So they were like, well, it didn't match. And the other problem was, as they began to understand more about lunar volcanism, it was realized that the, the volcanic activity on the moon had stopped just so long ago, it couldn't possibly be linked to the Australasian tectites, right? So they had two problems. Because if those formed around 780-odd thousand years ago, then that doesn't make any sense for, you know, a volcano that was know, a billion years old or something, right? So, so they had this problem, so it couldn't mesh. And so at that point, the, the, pretty much all of the lunar hypothesis guys, which seem to be almost all NASA guys, they essentially kind of folded, or at least most of them kind of folded, because they're like, well, okay, you know, we're wrong. It can't, it seems it can't be lunar uh, volcanic material. But, you know, you guys who are kind of saying it's an Earth impact, you've got a lot of explaining still to do. And they sort of point out, because there's a lot of anomalies here that are not explained by a conventional impact that there's something really exotic here. And, and so sometimes when people look at it and they, they Google it, they'll say, okay, well, I'll Google this astrolite that Bruce has mentioned. And they say, well, it says here, it's just asteroid, you know, it's an asteroid impact. Uh, it's just a distal ejector that's been thrown out of this, you know, and, and that's as far as most people will go. Yeah, that was the, so what I read was that um, the reigning hypothesis right now is that uh, an asteroid struck the Earth and then threw up bits of Earth rock. And then that Earth rock went into low Earth orbit uh, it was molten, it, fr it, fr it freezes in space, comes right back down. So that would give you that shallow angle you were talking about, right? Because it, it came up from the Earth and it kind of skims the atmosphere and then slides back down. Um, that would be an incredible event, right? Something hit the Earth hard enough to put pieces of Earth into space. And then you, you think that that can be ruled out though, right? I do, yeah. And I, the reason why is there's a few different reasons why. First of all... Um, when objects do hit the Earth, even at hypervelocity impacts, there's a few different constraints because, you know, if you imagine the Earth's atmosphere, you know, it's a bit like water. Okay, it's a lot more fluid, it's a lot 
it's a lot easier to pass through. But like with uh, you know firing a bullet into water, the water compresses ahead of it, and that bullet, no matter how much power and velocity it had, it hits that water, and the water compresses, and it very quickly stops and it falls. Right, mm-hmm. um, and now. There's the same things happening in the Earth's atmosphere. Obviously, it's not quite as solid as water. But if you have a hypervelocity impact, even if the material starts out by ejecting at, say, uh, usually it's around about five kilometers a second. So you have this flying out at this colossal speed. Now, no matter what angle, you think about it, if you have a really steep angle, right, that's not going to go very far. It's going to go you know, quite up and then down. It's not going to go very far. If you have a very steep angle, Right? There's a point where you're now going through the thickest part of the Earth's atmosphere. Right, So that very quickly compresses the air ahead of it and has equal resistance and will fall. Uh, and so they worked out that you know, the best angle for the furthest distribution is about 30 degrees in a hypervelocity impact. And so you can get material that will travel about 400 kilometers. I think in some extreme cases, it potentially could be 1,000 kilometers but generally it seems the agreement is 400 kilometers away from the crater edge is the normal in terms of you know as far as you'd expect it to go right so this is a problem because then you've got a 10,000 kilometer long strewn field right and there's a lot of issues about that strewn field because first of all if you have an impact there should be a lot of proximal ejector so the ejector that actually at the crater site now if you think if there's there's 10 trillion tons of australasian tectite spread across this vast 10,000 kilometer long strewn field there should be mountains of this stuff near the crater site right absolute mountains of this stuff well, th- yeah there should there should be mountains of something right something it wouldn't be uh, australite but it would be so, well some of it should be because if this if this glass is formed in the impact itself then yes if this is really the 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 melted rock from the crater it should be in the crater near the crater and you know see something distributed further the crater. so that's one problem so they can't find this crater there's no sign really of a place where well there's signs of places where it should be because if you consider there's chunks of this material that are 25 kilos in parts of indochina now how far does a chunk of, of material that's 25 kilos travel from an impact site not far Right, so they say, well, they must be there. And that's why they say Indochina. They say, well, it's got to be somewhere there because look, you know, we've got this long, long tectite, huge chunks of it. Uh, it must be around here. But then you've got huge chunks of it down across from the Indonesian islands. And as one scientist said, well, how damn big would this crater be then? If you're going to have 20 kilo chunks like a thousand kilometers away, then the whole crater should be almost all of these of Indonesia in a way that you know. And also to get the kind of scenario where this stuff is thrown up into space. You know, and again, you know, again, this is another, you know, scientific researchers. One guy said we should be looking at a crater about the size of Ireland. You know, this should be like a comet that's hit us and left a crater size of Ireland that's thrown material up into space. Because the only other examples where they think this is kind of happening is things like the Chicxulub event, where you know the dinosaurs eradicated. You know, a comet, you know, miles across, hitting, leaving a vast, vast crater, right? Which is, you know, even now, a million, sixty-five million years later, is quite visible, right? Uh, both, you know, you can see it geologically, you can also detect it with remote sense and all the rest right so and we don't we don't have any evidence of that level of an extinction event occurring around 800,000 years ago no not no extinction event and on top of that there's another problem with it because this impact even if it's not quite on that scale you know if this is such a significant impact it's launched all this you know 10 trillion tons of material across a 10,000 kilometer long stream field this would launch an enormous amount of dust into the atmosphere huge amounts of dust 
right? Should be we should be having a nuclear winter, and that's again that's been associated with the with the Chicxulub event, uh, a die off in plants and other animals. I mean, nobody's quite sure what killed the dinosaurs, but there was a, a change in the flora and fauna. Uh, there's a dust layer. You know, you've got the um, the K2 boundary, which you've got this clay layer. In it is uh, dust. There's also uh, ash and soot above that and stuff so they know there was raging fires they know there was a die-off they know there was a nuclear winter right you've got the dust in a layer all around the world right so where's the one for this event seven hundred eighty thousand years ago they they do find the microtectites in cores ocean cores but not with any of this dust so that's where that dust layer should be if you're finding the microtectites when you drill and take these ocean cores with those microtectites should be the dust layer no sign of it right now I'm not the first person to point out that there is a um, that this is mostly pointing towards something else. There's a, a geologist over in the US, I can't remember his name top of my head, but he has for quite a while pointed out that a lot of this evidence points to aerial bursts of an object breaking up in space. Because if you think about it, if, if there is a large object, now whether natural or unnatural, if this object is coming in and it breaks apart, and again this fits well with the NASA data as well as some of the other information, that basically you know, he thinks it's probably a natural object, but he, he's just, this object breaks up, and so pieces of it are coming down across into China, also across Australia, and this is kind of a hand in glove. I would say that really this guy, he should have already had some prize for this, but I guess he hasn't written up properly. But essentially, uh, when you look for, for Austral Australasian tectites across Australia, they're often found in clusters, so you'll find loads of it, and then none for a thousand kilometers, right? And then another cluster. And he said, well, if you think about it, that's exactly what you expect with aerial bursts. If you've got chunks of this material coming in from space, it's exploding in our atmosphere, and then it's producing small pieces of tectite. Now, those tectites are not shaped with these buttons. And you find, that's why, if you look at Australian tectite, it has multiple morphologies. So you have the buttons, but you also have dumbbells, teardrops, spheres, and discs. Right? All of those other forms can be seen in other impact events, right? Because this is kind of normal shaping within the atmosphere. So you'll find that most of the Australian tectites are shaped like that. So hang on a minute. How come some are coming in from space and some aren't? Yeah, can I make you, can I have you stop for one second? So I can yeah, just, sure. What I'm sure. seeing in my head as you describe this is something like, um, when a firework goes off near a building and you get these like, so the firework goes off and you have like an expanding concentric sphere, right? And so uh, as it impacts mm -hmm. the building surface, you'll end up with uh, like the part that's closest from the building to the firework, particular kind of scorch mark. Further away, you get more skid marks. Is that, is that and that, that mm -hmm. explains, correspond roughly to the kind of differences in the tectites that you're seeing near what you think is the epicenter you're not getting the flanges. But then further away from where you think the epicenter would be, you get more of these flanges? Uh, yes, in a way, yes. Because there's two, well, there's two places where you get them. One is in Java, amongst the Javanite tectites. And the other area where you find the buttons is down in southern Australia. Now, I agree with the mainstream kind of view in terms of that. I think the, the major event happens around Indochina but where where I disagree is I'm saying it's happening way above Indochina and it's not an impact so you've got the initial explosion is there and so some of these objects come in from space th there but there's a this object the source body is in is in, uh, in motion it's in orbit it's in an orbital path and some of the debris bounces along the atmosphere and comes down in southern Australia 
right? So it's almost some comes from above where, you know, from where the thing happens and some of it is propelled and it comes down at this angle across the atmosphere. Now, the other pieces, the rest of you imagine, so it's a very large object. Now, chunks of it are also moving along in that orbit. You're now in a decaying orbital path and pieces of it, every now and again, pieces are breaking the atmosphere all the way along that debris field. So almost all of the rest of the debris is from aerial bursts. There's, there's large chunks now are breaking through the atmosphere. And when they come down, those are exploding like nuclear bombs. And, and so they're throwing now material through the atmosphere. And that won't be aerodynamically shaped in the same way. Instead, it has these teardrop shapes, which are, you know, are aerodynamically shaped, and spheres and disks where it's spinning. So some of these spinning pieces form disks. Um, so you have, and where the dumbbells are where they're spinning round round and they, they, the weight goes to each end. So you get these kind of dumbbell shapes that are spinning. And so these are all forms that we understand what's going on with them. But they are, they are definitely not only associated with normal impacts, but with aerial bursts. And so you can see that these are characteristic. And the fact that you find on the ground clusters, again, that would suggest a lot, you know, an object broke up above there and the pieces fell down. Then you go a thousand kilometers away, you find another cluster. So he says these are, this is signatures of aerial burst. Also, the Muong Nong Tech type, which is these 25 kilo chunks. So it's really what's happening there. That's aerial burst very close to the ground. And he kind of has a, almost like a, well, really a smoking gun because they found that one of these large chunks has another piece of tech type welded to it. And he says, you can tell that this other piece has come in hot and attached to cooled tech type. So it says, this is another aerial burst that's come in a few hours later. And it's, and by pure luck, a piece of it has splashed onto a cooled piece. And he says, so we now you know this can't be from a singular impact event because how can there be hours of gap between one piece cooling on the ground and another piece splashing onto it? So he says, all this evidence there is pointing to aerial bursts. The, the large object has broken up over Indochina. You've got some melting of the surface there, which is the Muongnong, is different in its composition to the rest of the stream field. And you can tell this is a lot of it is molten surface rock and you have these very straight flows of if you have if you look it up you'll see it's flows and folds it's a lot of that again is also characteristic of aerial bursts as has been recently found at a, an aerial burst site out in i think the atacama desert that came out a story in the last year and they talk about these folds of the the molten material and you see those folds in the moon and tectites these are distinctive characteristics of aerial bursts so now, now, so if we've got the NASA guys saying, well, this is coming in, something is coming in from space. This object is a parent body has broken up in space. These other parts have bounced along the atmosphere and come down. And now you've got this geologist, you know, in the US is pointing out, look, we've got characteristics here of, of pieces of this aerial burst. There's a missing crater, right? You've got this strange distribution, this vast strewn field. You've got this anomalous uh, finding homogeneity of this material which is completely unlike normal impacts uh, you have then you have some real issues because if if this is not an impact that means that the australites their chemical composition and isotopic ratios represent quite closely the parent body right because you know, if it didn't hit the ground, then it's just the molten remnants of the parent body. You know, you can't say it's made out of earth rock. It's not made out of any of that because it's raining down from space. Then it is simply the residue of whatever that bigger object was. Now, that becomes a problem because it contains, uh, you know, it has chemical composition, which is unlike any asteroid or any comet. It's got 70% plus silica. 
Uh, it's got about ten percent aluminium. It's got you know, rare earth, rare earth elements which you do associate with objects from outer space. Uh, it also has sort of isotopic ratios which are unlike surface rock. There's some arguments, complex arguments around this that it's more like igneous rock than surface rock, which is problematic because they know that in a hypervelocity hyper impact, you can't really create this stuff out of basement rock, the lower rock. So there's elements to it, again, which don't fit this narrative. So there's a few different papers that have kind of pointed out there's a lot of problems when you start saying, if you say, well, this isn't actually of surface rock, then this composition also doesn't fit asteroids and comets known in our solar system, right? So then you're on to, well, okay, this appears to be an interstellar object because the composition is unlike anything else that we know in our solar system. It doesn't look like anything from our planet because it's got these, uh, okay, it's got these uh, signatures in it that are consistent with things from outer space, but, but things from outer space are never made of quartz. Well, that's the other problem is that, yeah, the suggestion is that this is the silica content is from melted quartz and quartz is never, has not been detected in, to my knowledge at all, really forming an asteroid. It forms in planetary bodies. So you'd have to have, say, an exploded planet or something like that to have that kind of quartz. I mean, that's feasibly possible. Um, but the other thing is that that high level of silica content, the highest level of silica content in any known uh, asteroids or, you know, material out in our solar system is a 60 percent. So absolute highest. So if you've got 70 percent plus silica straight away, that's an anomalous object. So that's nothing like anything we see in our solar system. So, you know, putting to one side the idea that this could be, you know, an alien, you know, an extraterrestrial technological craft, you put that to one side, we just have straight away indications of the first ever interstellar object. And obviously that's a big buzz thing at the moment because supposedly we've now got three of these. We've got um, you know the Mua, the Oumuamua, which came through. We've got this uh, recent asteroid, 2014, which they're talking about, and the comet uh, Borislov, right? Which these three objects were the first ever interstellar objects that we detected. Now, obviously, they're not going to be the first ones ever. Yeah, have you heard that they're saying well, one of those three landed in the Pacific? Yeah, and they want to go down. Okay, and find so they the haven't fa they haven't been able to retrieve it yet. Not yet, but they they want to launch a mission. They're raising the funds to go down and use magnetic, uh, you know, tools to try and pick up the debris because there is some hopes that that may be from an alien craft. And again, you know, the, the teams now are talking very openly about that they think, you know, potentially both Oumuamua and this 2014 object could be alien technologies. Okay. So they're being, which is quite yeah, do, Now, do you think, what, what would you predict based on the El Chiringa and your, are you expecting, let's see, if it, was an alien craft that went down in the Pacific, is it going to have a similar composition to um, to the Australite strewn field that you've been studying? Um, difficult to say. What, what I do know is that they calculate that whatever that 2014 object was, it's it was about twice as strong as iron. So... And they could tell that by the the penetration of the atmosphere to the depth of penetration was unusual, so it was particularly hard, and so it and also it came it came in at this very you know unusual in speeds and this angle and and then it had this strange composition. So that's what's kind of led to this idea that it could be not just interstellar, but maybe made of some kind of special material because of the way um, this object came in. They were able to calculate it it had come from deep within a solar system so like the inner planets of a solar system uh, and also it was made of this unknown material that was 
twice as hard as iron. And so even iron meteorites are quite rare. So the idea this was twice as hard as, as iron was kind of strange. So there's the potential there that it, that it may be made of an unknown metal. So you can think about that even if it's not technological, uh, again, the fact that it may be made of an unknown metal is worth a lot to science, maybe worth a lot to industry, because this might be an entirely new metal, right? So you can see why they'd want to go down and find this. It could have an incalculable value, whether it's artificial or whether it's not. But uh, but e even if the 2014 object is a spacecraft and the and the mm -hmm. uh, Australidstern field is the remains of the Rexagena, they could just they could be from totally different makes and models of spacecraft, right? There might not be anything in, in common. Yeah, and if you think about it, if you if there's and again, we don't know who's out there or how many people are out there, but let's say that there are a few hundred intelligent, you know, civilizations spread across the galaxy. You know, if if many of them are sending out probes, you know, to explore, then we could have, you know, especially if they're making lots of these, if they're self-replicating probes, which is of course one of these one of the speculations um, by um, I'm trying to think of the guy's name now. I came up with these suffering approach but basically you know if there are civilizations doing that these things could essentially fill the milky way like over you know if you think over millions of years these things could absolutely fill the milky way they might be raining down past us all the time right so there could be all kinds of probes on the moon crashed into the ice on you know europa uh probes under the sea you know because at the moment we haven't just we've only just started to kind of accept that that these interstellar objects exist Right. So now they're starting to look for them. It's a bit like and I used this example in an article recently that, you know, until about uh, a couple of years ago, it was widely dismissed that there was any such thing as meteorites. Right. That the, the, the consensus view was that it was absurd that rocks could fall from the sky. Absurd. Right. Yeah. They were they were thunderstones. That's what people said. They said they're caused by lightning. Yeah. People they, they wouldn't have it. So then as soon as that position changed of course it didn't mean that that was the first ever meteor shower right so so instead we realized that there'd been thousands of thousands and hundreds of thousands of, of these meteorites that had come in from space and of course then we start to, to study backwards and start to understand all these major events so of course the same thing is going to now happen with interstellar objects that you know we're starting to realize that okay Oumuamua and these other two or since 2014 to now you know the first three interstellar objects well if there was three there's going to be millions, right? You know, it's that kind of thing that we've obviously missed a huge number of these things. And they're obviously either passing through our solar system all the time or impacting bodies in our solar system all the time. So there's yet yeah, no reason to think that they would, even if they're technological, whether they would come from the same civilization. No, there's no reason to think that. There could be lots of probes out there flying around from different civilizations. Yes, there could be many from the same one. They could be like self-replicating probes and we could find that there's hundreds of the same kind of probe, you know, building itself throughout the solar system, you know, exploring all of the worlds here. That's, again, all technically possible. There's nothing, you know, it sounds sci-fi, but it's, it's actually kind of what we should be seeing. Uh, and that's the thing about the whole, you know, the power, the, the power, what's it, the, I'm trying to think of called the, yeah, the Fermi paradox, that really is the idea that where is everybody? But if it's just we haven't been looking for anybody, uh, and that as soon as we actually look, we find that there's shed loads of these things out there, that would quickly resolve that paradox. I mean, I would say there is no paradox, because if you're not really looking for something, then it's no surprise if you don't notice it. Now, now we're seeing that these interstellar objects clearly must be regular, and we hadn't been seeing them. So that kind of suggests that we may be missing all kinds of junk that's been flying past, right? So if we've got three in just the last few years, 
when did the first one start to arrive? Well, I'm going to say that it's going to go back a very long way. So one at 788,000 years is probably not going to be the first, but it's just at this point, I would say it's the earliest. And we, you know, and we, for the purposes now of what I'm doing with my research, I, I'm stepping back a bit from saying, look, you know, at least for some people, certainly for the academic and scientific kind of minded people more so, to say, well, look, you know, let's not say it's uh, an alien spaceship. Let's just say that this is this appears to be the first interstellar object because that makes it extraordinarily interesting, right? Because if we're saying that the composition of this is that of the parent body, then we have now the ability to look at the makeup of an object that came from interstellar space, from some other system, and that is in, in our hands, you know, because you don't have to go down to the bottom of the ocean. You know, we don't need to chase Oumuamua out into the cosmos, right? That we, we have this material there. Now... I would also say, and I'll let you come back to me, but I would also say that there is the potential that this infers that the other strewn fields all represent interstellar objects uh, and that that's something we've been missing because we have these, all of them have extraordinary arguments to explain them. That if you look closer, none of them are really resolved. And in fact, the craters they're linked to are uncertain in all of the cases. They're uncertain that they're really from the craters they've linked them but to. But here's the thing about them being interstellar objects is... Um I mean, your hypothesis is that the Australian strewn field is caused by a spacecraft that was blown up in an attack. And so mm -hmm. they, wouldn't mm -hmm. they all have to have been the result of spacecraft being blown up in orbit? No, not necessarily, because they don't have that aerodynamic shaping. So, so these things could have potentially yeah, bro broke up in the atmosphere, coming in, blown up or, or you know, near the ground, you know, maybe just malfunctioning technology, uh, something like that. You know that just happens to pass this way and it's crashing down through the atmosphere and explodes the only one that explodes in orbit is this is the source body for the australasian tectite all the other ones lack that that button tectite type but they're all extraordinary and you've got to think there's only four strewn fields in 4.5 billion years so something's weird about these strewn fields straight away right because if they were just normal impact debris why don't we see tectites at all of these other impact sites and and how do we explain the fact that, and then they obviously complex items for this but how do you explain this fining process because that's also seen in moldavites and in other tectites this is a characteristic of tectite glasses right is that they are they're very homogenous and they're very well fined so in other words it, it looks very like the body that is coming in is already glass it's already glassy material right now that's weird because what the hell are these big chunks of glassy stuff that are flying around out there because you know again either they could be uh, pieces of exploded planets or something like that where the quartz has been somehow melted and you know they've made these really weird asteroids uh, which again would be interesting in itself or they are something even weirder you know there really is some something someone's building you know silica objects which would be akin to bracewell probes and Bracewell came up with this idea that you could have living AI um, exploration vehicles because rather than biological entities, you know, traveling around the universe, it makes more sense to send out AI probes. So if you build, you know, a relatively large uh, silicon network, that can be like a mega brain, right? So you send your mega brain out and it's, it's almost immortal. It flies around exploring everything, you know, acting as the intermissary of your civilization. Uh, and these things make a lot of sense. And that's what we kind of expect to see. I mean, a lot of people expect to see little green men, you know, whatever, on a spaceship. But in, in reality, if you look at the, even the story arc of us, the only intelligence we've really closely studied, it looks very unlikely we're going to send biological beings anywhere, right? We're going to maybe go to Mars, perhaps. 
unwisely probably die there right but if, if we're going to go and really explore the cosmos i don't think any people are going to do that you know i think that we're going to send robots out oh yeah you know? but what about uh i thought the rexagena had five thousand colonists for some reason i thought they were like uh, they were like humanoids like us that's what it says you know but i i would expect i'd think that to be if that is the case and again i can't validate they're on there but if that is the case i again would think that would be a rarity that i would imagine that most civilizations would never do that you just send out the frick even in that case they're saying the ship is a living being and it can think it can do its own thing so i think so the crew seems to be unnecessary in a way like you know okay they could choose to go somewhere but the crew isn't necessary to do anything because that ship can just go along, fly around, do what it wants to do, because it's conscious, right? So if you've got to that level where you've got an AI ship, you don't need a crew, really. The crew is essentially like well, like tourists or something going along. Whereas we have a crew because they have to do all the functions, you know, they're using all the equipment. These craft wouldn't need to do any of that. There's some, there's some kind of interesting asides, and I don't want to keep too long, but I'll just say that, I mean, you're probably aware that there's some mythology out there around, say, the Tunguska event, right, which was... Uh, back in 1907, an object exploded again, an aerial burst. There was an aerial burst over Tunguska in Siberia. Um, for many years, all kinds of stories have sprung up around that as to what that was. You know, some of those are quite wild, you know, stories that maybe it was an alien ship, had a its nuclear rockets exploded and, you know, and it destroyed this vast amount of forest uh, and apparently... Uh, had some after effects in how plants grow there that it's affected how the plants grow um, and so uh, a few months back I was thinking to myself you know it sort of cropped up I thought well if there's really these crystal crafts lying around is there any other examples in history where something weird has happened that might associate with one of them and so Tunguska kind of popped up in my mind and so I looked into was the Tunguska event associated with any weird silica or crystal material and unbelievably i found this article from siberian times where it turned out that um one of those scientists who'd had this chunk of it's really weird looking it's um not not emerald looking but kind of this really amazing crystalline material that had been sitting in their fish tank for years and years and it was from that event and when they analyzed it they said it's unlike anything on earth and they said so it must come from some sort of space event but they couldn't really associate it with the asteroid they're saying well there must have been something else because it's not like asteroid debris but it's come from space. And you're going to look and think, well, so, well, what is it then? Right? What is this weird stuff? So you say it's not from the asteroid, but it's somehow associated with the event and it fell to Earth there. And it's this weird. So I find that interesting. Again, you know, is it that potentially we are expecting all these kind of metal probes and metal crafts and, and that we are just not looking for the right stuff and that the civilizations have moved beyond that and are using these kind of metallic glasses and silica glasses, which, you know, Again, our engineers are starting to theorize that we should be using these, right? Um, so I, I think that we've gone down the wrong path. And I think that we're going to start to see a shift now that we're looking for interstellar objects. I think that we're going to also see a shift to looking for things like metallic glasses and silica networks and stuff. And then when we do, we're going to think, well, hang on. Is there any evidence or anything like that ever arriving to Earth? And once you do that, then you go straight to tectites because it's just a glaring anomaly that you've got four of these strewn fields of this material which no one can properly explain and that you know after all these years none of those stream fields are properly explained the reason why i'm particularly drawn to the australian one is apart from the you know the, the archering story bringing me to that is that when you look at all of these it's the most extraordinary because it has that shaping which shows that it has to have come in from space and that's why i don't spend much time really on the others because i think first to change a paradigm 
you know, you use the best evidence you have. I mean, there's no point me saying, well, Moldavite might be from space, but the argument is weaker when we can see, well, hang on a minute, we've got these NASA scientists have recreated australite tectites in, you know, at the NASA Ames Center saying that they have to have traveled through the upper atmosphere at like 10 kilometers a second and are saying, look, the composition's totally wacky if it's from Earth. Um, and so you've got all of this study that's been done for 160 years. And keep in mind, that's a long time, right, to solve the problems. You know? So you've had 160 years of the best minds trying to solve this conundrum, and they can't. And they, they've come up with exotic solutions, um, like, for example, an object blasting a hole in the atmosphere. So you have like a vacuum, I'd say, well, a, a huge area of vacuum punched in the atmosphere. And so then this material is thrown up through the vacuum hole, right, into space. Now, okay if you have a big enough impact that is sort of possible but now you think about it if this that would allow material to travel much further because obviously you can go through a vacuum without resistance so you would have material could go uh, diagonally or straight up and all that a lot easier obviously there's still gravity at play but you know you would have a, a greater distribution but that that vacuum filled hole you would imagine everything in it's dead right so this is, this is obviously a devastating event and the kind of impact that would do that again you're back to that chicxulub typing this is going to be something mega devastating that we would see in the record of Indochina. we'd see that there's just this unbelievable horrific event that doesn't show up and then on top of that most of that material should just go off out into space like why does it hard right and then start bouncing along the edge of the atmosphere at 10 kilometers a second right so nobody seems to be able to offer that an explanation and when we look at um, the best and the best arguments for this around this, you know, some of the the physics and the math just doesn't add up. You know, there's attempts to square this, saying that you know, what if the material was um, traveling at such a way, at such a speed, and at such a temperature? And what you find is the temperatures they give are totally out from the temperatures that actually formed the glass. So you know, you, you can sort of drill into the exotic arguments that are being offered and see that they don't add up. So nobody has managed to come up with a convincing hypothesis for how this distribution has occurred for how the material is formed and for how it is uh, you know how its isotopic and chemical compositions could fit if it's not from an impact um, so all of this is full of glaring holes and i think when you see that many anomalies you, the, the story's wrong and the hypothesis is wrong because if you can't explain the anomalies in your hypothesis then you're wrong and that's science you know what I mean? That's that's the underlying problem. Whereas I can explain all. Now it's an exotic solution, but I can explain all of the anomalies. And the thing is, you know, we go back to the the famous line: you know, "Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence." I'm making an extraordinary claim. I will present extraordinary evidence for it. So I have no problem with that. I would quite happily debate or discuss that with anyone who is you know, knowledgeable in the tech type field at this point. You know, I've spent enough time reading the academic papers to I feel. Uh, comfortably hold my own that doesn't mean I wouldn't have to learn from people who in those debates who would know things I wouldn't know uh, and I would have to go away and see if they had merits but at this point I, I'm quite comfortable in that nobody's explained this it remains a mystery we've only got these few stream fields we know now interstellar objects are coming into our solar system why aren't we considering that these are interstellar objects hmm. yeah and can I add, does anyone even have a, a possible explanation for uh, the airburst? Like, it's hard to imagine a naturalistic reason why a big piece of quartz would uh, airburst or explode above the Earth's atmosphere. Well, that's the other problem. There's a couple of problems there as well. Yeah, large 
uh, into like, large cosmic bodies get captured by big planets like Jupiter and Saturn and stuff. We don't tend to see them captured by Earth, right? So if we're talking about an object now that is many kilometers across, which seem to be, you know, 10 trillion tons of material found so far, uh, or calculated to be out there. Um, so enormous object. Uh, so how does Earth end up with this thing in orbit? So that's the first thing. And there's a couple of NASA scientists kind of say this, you know, if this was something coming in from somewhere else, what kind of object, how would it get captured? And what kind of object would this be? And there's like one paper where someone kind of almost touches on this thing of, well, what the hell would that be? You know, because how does it get captured by Earth's gravity in the first place? Because it should be zooming past at these colossal speeds, like 40 kilometers a second, bounced off the edge of the atmosphere and back into space, right? These things don't generally, we get, we capture objects you know the size of a bus or something like that right but so the first of all you've got this problem of how did it end up in orbit and then as you rightly say why does it explode <laughs> because if it's just like a moon like a mini moon orbiting the planet why would it explode and be superheated to liquid glass and start you know raining down and coming down in this decaying orbit of raining glass coming down and chunks flying down it's that doesn't make sense it doesn't make sense that it would be in an orbit and then it's exploded and that's another area i think where then you have to go to something else is going on here there has to be in my view a technological solution to that because that starts to suggest something like a, an engine that's overheated or a decaying technology that has blown up because unless someone can say well you know explain it's not impossible for earth to capture a large object again and I've, I've looked into this this is considered not uh, not impossible but it's extraordinarily extraordinary and likely and we don't have any record of that happening it doesn't seem to other than the moon and the moon is meant to have supposedly formed in that kind of double whack and stuff so you know it's quite different uh, even the the moons of mars now most people don't think that they were captured asteroids think that they also are parts of mars uh, that broke off so there's not really any examples of a, a planet our size capturing anything like that so we're starting to get to the point where well hang on so how would that object end up there and then why would it explode you know why would it explode? So you've got an exotic so when you put those together exotic composition behaving weirdly by now being in earth orbit and then exploding and then the material is unlike anything from our solar system right and that material just happens to be 70% silica, the material that we theorize alien AI probes would be made of. Right? So that's why I look at that. So I think, you know, at this point, I'm quite happy to say, well, let's not worry too much about the Andringa story and the fact that, you know, someone said they had that or that the Aboriginal people might make claims which sound like awfully like Bracewell probes saying that, that they've had these artifacts, right? That they their own mythology says living receptacles of knowledge that um, tell them that they are these, you know, Aldringa beings, or that um, seem to know the whole history of humanity, right? Uh, which is the almost the exact description of a, a Bracewell Sentinel probe, which is a theoretical object which would sit on a planetary surface, monitor all the events, and potentially make contact with a civilization if it arose. <laughs> That's basically exactly the story in the Aldringa book: is that someone has encountered this thing, it's intelligent, it says there's a whole history of humanity that we've collected, we can now share with you, right? Sorry? So you you cut out again. So that's exactly Sorry. the Altringa story. These things are... Well, that's the interesting... Yes, exactly the story is what we kind of... If you look into Bracewell probes and the expectations of them, one of the expectations is that potentially if there had been a Bracewell sentinel probe in our solar system or on our planet monitoring, that it might make contact. And one of the things it could possibly know is our entire history and that it might share that with us. And that's if you look into you know, what 
theorists in that field are saying, they're saying that. And so now you have this story where someone's saying, well, this weird object, you know, it started talking in my head, told me this whole history of Earth and said, you know, there was this craft that blew up and there was these things that happened. And it appears there's actually debris and material evidence that are very similar to what it's describing. Uh, and it's saying that this is a story of human history that, you know, it's sharing with us at this time. And the Aboriginal people themselves say, yeah, these objects, you know, they're from that Algeringa time when humans are created and that they can communicate, they hold information. Um, if we were to look at that in a non-mythological view, in a technological view, then that would be the exact story we might expect of an encounter with an alien Bracewell probe. And so, although I can't prove that happened, it's interesting to think that the, that the story fits almost precisely the very expectations these theorists are telling us of what might the first contact be like. Yeah, so the uh, the Aboriginal mythology fits up with what uh, people who do SETI theoretical research say uh, an alien first encounter might be like encountering a probe. Exactly. Yeah, with one of these technologies. So, yeah. like, so that the idea there is the Rexagena breaks up in space, and then uh, its individual parts still function. They're still able to carry out some kind of function. Well. I don't know. I mean, I can't say whether those parts, but, you know, allegedly in the in what she was told, there were craft that came down and that, you know, there were some survivors and craft that came down, that those had functional technologies and that they were then responsible for this engineering. I mean, I can't say that if it happened. I believe it. But then, you know, this is where we go into belief rather than me being able to support that with compelling evidence, because it could equally be that that's a story that the let's say the the object is is real and it is is given this story now that story could be part true and part propaganda of some sort right so maybe they want us to believe there's this crew that i mean it could all be done by ai you know this whole thing could have been done by an ai and it's you know sent down its ai probes and its ai robots and modified us and it just made up that part i mean i couldn't you know i don't have anything that would convincingly compel anyone to believe that biological aliens did come down and do that right so i'm open to the fact that you know that this that part of it i can't support and it could be a mixture of of truth that you can validate with then a story that it wants you to believe and i think that we have to be careful with that because if you look at the history of people having experiences with um anomalous phenomena now whether alien type phenomena or you know leprechauns and pixies were there's a lot of weird trickery that goes on in those stories um so i think anytime you've got psychical and paraphysical kind of events you've got to be a little bit careful because it, it does seem there's a lot of trickery and i know that jacques valet the kind of the famous uh you know astronomer who's plunged deep into both the ufo topic and uh, wider high strangeness you know he, he sees these very much as tricksters you know there's some kind of trickster intelligence that it, it's shaping our beliefs and it seems to be almost like an evolutionary function to it um, and it's using narratives and stories and mythology to direct our cultures and our evolution in some mysterious way now if that's the case i do think we have to be a little bit cautious with the idea that there's elements of this story which don't necessarily need to be true and that might not be true um, do you know what I mean? So I, I'm wary, although I kind of believe that stuff. I, I, I know where my belief starts and where my evidential you know, arguments end. And, and so I have to be kind of aware that to make that difference to anyone who's kind of listening, that I, I understand that there's a point where you can say, well, 
you know, even if it really happened, you don't know that it's telling the truth on the rest of that stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, these things have uh, these non-physical, non-human entities that communicate with us don't seem to have a great track record of always telling the truth based on the research I've done. So you're focusing more than on the, the scientifically verifiable empirical data, right? Like this uh, anomalous astrogeological event you've identified. Yeah, because cause to be honest, you know, if, um, if I can validate that this is the earliest interstellar object, that's a big deal in itself. And that would be, for me, almost like a, a career maker, right? <laughs> you know, so I don't really need to, at this point, I think, well, I don't really need to validate that it's aliens. And I, if anything, the conservative position would be to establish that this is an anomalous object that was interstellar, or well, even that it didn't hit the Earth. If, if you can establish that it didn't hit the Earth, that's one of the biggest geological mysteries for 160 years, solved, right? So first, that's a nice tick. If it can then be shown that it's almost certainly an interstellar object, that's a lovely big tick on my work. Uh, and if then people are interested and ask me, what do I think it was? I'm in a much better position to say, well, you know, my view is probably an alien technology. Absolutely. And then, so are you working on another book that focuses on continuing this argument, uh, extending it further? At the moment, I'm, I'm trying to put this together into a Substack series on my um, my personal Substack, which is brucefenton.substack.com. And, you know, I'm going to put a series going through why this uh, appears to be the first interstellar object. And I, I felt rather than doing a book, I'll put it out there in a way that, you know, is more accessible and also that potentially then I can share links to any interested either journalists or scientists who want to look at that argument uh, and it gives me more feedback from people hopefully so that's the direction I'm going with it I'll probably try and make a video series brucefenton.substack.com huh so if you can find that yeah brucefenton.substack.com I believe it should be yeah so I've put the first part up already um so although in many ways, yeah, I know that most people would look at me as, you know, be most interested in the the evolutionary side, you know, and the genetic engineering arguments I make. But uh, as I kind of indicated to you, the, the, the thing that can be most readily validated is this physical event with this object. So while I, again, I'm still inclined to the view that there was genetic engineering of humans, um, the evidence for that is not as strong as that there was an interstellar object. So, you know, I think make the case of the strongest argument first and take a couple of steps back from everything else. And that's not to say I'd abandon it. I still think that there's compelling evidence that something was done to us. Um, I mean, very briefly, I know you touched on some of this in your review, but yeah, yes, I mean, around about 700 and around that period, so around 700,000, probably close to 800,000 years ago. Something strange happens in the hominin line. You do see the brain capacity of, of humans suddenly rockets upwards and it's um, no longer hand in hand with body size changes. So there's, there's something strange is happening. And obviously that has to be at the genetic level. So it's going to be this expression of genes going on. So we know that and that was known before any genetics was done because you see in the fossil record, um, there's been all sorts of theories why that happened. Nobody really knows, but it's lots of theories. And then now we know that there was some really 
you know, odd things that do happen close to that time. There's some genes for the brain, one that appears, and they, they consider it appears fully formed from non-coding DNA and has a really important function in the brain. There's another one that is described as appearing to be a short segment of a longer gene that looks like almost like it was copied and put back in. And then you've got uh, the chromosome 2 fusion, which I know you touched on. That is an extraordinary event because, not because fusions never happen, but because this fusion has to have had extraordinary, given extraordinary benefits to the organism. And that's because we you know normally when you get a chromosomal error, and like a fusion or anything like that, usually it's uh, negative, deleterious effects, or neutral at best, and that these things then uh, disappear because, you know, there's most, nearly every other human will have the right number of chromosomes. So when they breed, there's no benefit to having an error. It is just absorbed back into the population and disappears, right? So it's understood that when this fusion happened, it ha there has to be three criteria for what we're seeing, which is we see a total replacement of all of the 48 chromosome humans by 46 chromosome humans, a total global replacement, right? So that's super weird because that should not be expected. And so what they, they came to conclusion of is that he suggests that, first of all, that this fusion probably happened somehow in more than one individual in a community, uh, that this had to be a fairly isolated interbreeding community, and that then on top of that, that it conveyed extraordinary benefits to the individuals that had it. And so that's what allowed it to persist. So you'd have to have these mating pairs where more than one had it, also, also kind of isolated, so they're not just going out and mixing with the bigger population that has 46 chromosomes, they're breeding with each other, and that they have extraordinary like uh, evolutionary benefits from it that allow them to outcompete all the other humans, right? So that's where it starts to become super weird. And if you look at um, intelligence design, you know, religious intelligence design, uh, there's a lot of cases made around this, saying, well, chromosome two is what makes us humans, and we, we couldn't have bred with these other kind of, you know, eight men, you know, God made us with these, these differences in chromosomes and, you know, all these uh, benefits with it. Um, which, okay, yeah, there is some super weirdness there, but you don't need the hand of God to be reaching in. But there is something strange as happening there. And that's why the the other, um, you know, religious intelligence design people often do focus on chromosome two, because they also realize that there's something really weird has happened there. Now, on top of that, you've got, and I know you touched on this, I think, before, that the HARs, which is the human accelerated regions, now, they're not very well dated, but it appears that at least... Uh, they are somewhat, some of them, somewhat in that dating range. You know, they're quite recently identified, so there's a lot of work to be done on them. But they, they are essentially hundreds of uh, surprisingly uh, changed regions in non-coding DNA. And I know you talked about genes, but these aren't genes. Just to be clear, these are these are these are in what's called um, hyper-conserved non-coding DNA. So segments of the what used to be called junk DNA that very rarely change and that's why I was making that comparison between the chicken the chimp and the humans is because um, you can see that you know there's 300 million years of evolution between the chicken and the chimp so you know it's a very long time and what they found was there was two letters two DNA letters had changed so it gives you an idea how stable these segments of code are so you know so 112 I think it's 118 letters long only two letters are changed in 300 million years. So that's why they call it hyper-conserved. So they must be doing something very important, probably in regulating genetic expression, is what's thought. So either turning off and on genes or changing to what degree these genes express. 
and so these appear to be doing these kind of functions so they don't really change often it more than likely if they do change the organism dies so it's doing things it's almost like saying that like, you make that change the lungs don't you know express properly or something like you know something that fundamental so it's it, it'd be very rare that there was a successful mutation because most of those individuals just die um so but then when they looked at the chimp and the human which only has seven million years separation which is basically a blink compared to 300 million um they expected there to be no change at all and instead they found that 18 letters had changed and that, that's why that's particularly extraordinary because it's like well hang on a minute if the rate of change is one letter every 150 million years what the hell happened between the split with you know chimps and today that gave us these suddenly accelerated changes in these highly stable unbelievably stable regions and we now found uh, several hundred of these changes so this the current view is what makes us who we are today uh, and depending on who you look at but basically the the focus is either it's the chromosome 2 change or it's the HARs right or it's um, well basically some sort of combination of these but the other two when I was looking at this you look at this, they say what makes us human most of those articles are focused on either chromosome 2 or on the HARs because we're now starting to realize that it's not so much the genes it doesn't matter so much it's like you look at compare a chimp and us it's like, oh so they're similar we're like 98 percent the same well, so it's, well yeah you know in a way but if you start to look at all the the duplications and deletions uh, and you know movement where you have hot, like jumping genes and stuff you start to look more deep to actually know we're not we're, we're way more different and we start to look at these things like these hrs you start to think well hang on we're a lot more different than that because it depends on how you're measuring it. Like if you're just saying purely, do we have the same code as them? Well, yes, yes, the code's really, really you know, similar. You start to look at how that code is structured, actually we're really different. And it looks like these HARs are a big part of it. Now, a very quick reply, just quickly say, if you keep in mind the comment made by Elon Musk a little while ago that with the right, with the, with the right strip of R, like uh, RNA, I could turn someone into a freaking butterfly. Like this is that kind of argument that we think that it's not necessarily that you need to have uh, loads of gene changes or the, let's say aliens came here. You don't need aliens to say, uh, blend themselves, mate with us. Cause this idea of hybrids that, you know, they're half alien, half human. If you really understand the genetic code, if you knew DNA, let's say that you were the writers maybe, right? That you wrote the code or something. You've come from space, you know this code. You don't need to do all that. What you do is you'd go in, you'd say, well, I want longer arms, I want a bigger head. So, so well, we'll just change how that head gene expresses, that skull gene. Well, we'll change the amount of expression on the arm, you know, and we just, you just almost, I say, like, play us like a piano, right? They know the music, right? There's no need really to splice in any alien DNA or anything like that. Uh, and on top of that, if you do want to splice something in, why not just take it from other organisms on the planet? The, you know, the, the bugs, the frogs, the toads, if there's some characteristic you want, you can take that from another organism here and splice it in. It seems unlikely the aliens would be anywhere near to our makeup. So you'd much more likely take code from other life forms here. And the rest of it is done just by changing the expression, switching genes on and off. And that's what you're seeing in that code, right? And the weird thing there is that um, there's a few articles on this. What would we look for if aliens had come here in the past and had meddled with genetics? And actually they say is, well, we'd have to look in the highly conserved non-coding DNA because that's so stable 
that that could persist for millions of years. Any changes there could persist for millions of years and be a red flag for some past visitation or as a deliberate message in a bottle for humanity, that that's where you'd look. Not in the genes because they keep changing, you know, you're getting too much mutation over time, too much change, that anything in there could be washed away. But if you were to look in that really highly conserved non-cone DNA and find accelerated you know regions or weird stuff in there that could potentially be a fingerprint for someone having been here and it's just very funny that that's now where we're finding really weird regions which seem to be associated with what make us different to all the other primates yeah well, what what does non-coding mean yeah so instead of um, instead of that that was to coding for genes basically so so when you have dna that actually it's coding for genes and then you have the other is non-coding which again they do things like um, control how powerfully a gene would express so you might have a gene that gives you uh, really good vision um, now there's also going to be code in there which controls whether that gene is turned on or off or whether it expresses really strongly and that's where you get some if you get some errors in there you know a gene may you may have a gene but it's not functioning, it's just switched off, so it never expressed, and you didn't get that trait you should have had. Um, so if you can if you can understand that code, and I don't think we're anywhere near understanding it, to be honest, but if you could, then you can start to really modify humans in a really profound sense. To be honest, I think it actually shows how dangerous it is. I just think that we're nowhere near understanding it. I think playing with it now, uh, as we look at this non-coding, so I think that we are nowhere near understanding how to do that. So they call it non-coding, but it's it's almost more like metacoding. Like it's the code that controls the code. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. I wish they just called it metacoding or something. <laughs> yeah. So you found yeah. all these genetic anomalies around eight hundred thousand years ago, and then that fits into the Alcharinga hypothesis. Um, yeah. But one thing that I was concerned about was that mm-hmm. clearly something did happen eight hundred thousand years ago because you also have the evidence of uh, asteroid bombardment. And we know there was a lot of climate change at the time. So I was wondering if you thought about whether um, it might there might just have been a, a, a difficult environment that drove evolutionary changes in human DNA. Just maybe there was a there was a not a nuclear winter, but an asteroidal induced winter a period of human suffering. Things are hard. And so, you know, only the strong and smart were able to survive. And that caused us to change a lot. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, there's definitely, I'd expect some sort of feedback loops. But again, this is, if it was that bad, again, we're going back to some of the other stuff. Where's the evidence there was the cataclysm that did this? Because, you know, and why haven't other life forms changed? You know, why aren't the, like, today, why are no other primates showing this leap, for example, right? Or, or any other animals? Why aren't they showing any mass, massive changes around that time? Because they would be dealing with that same environmental shift as us, right? So they... Wasn't there a die? Wasn't there a die-off event around that? Not time? that I'm aware of. No. Oh, so, okay. so that would be you know a major problem because if it was so bad, why don't we see that? And why aren't we seeing that globally? And because we're like, what we're talking about, you've got human populations, right? So you've got hominins would have been spread by that point. Hominins are in they're in Africa, they're in you know down in Southeast Asia, they're up in the Siberia. You know they they've roamed around. So unless this was a global cataclysm. Like you'd expect to see, okay, Southeast Asian maybe hominins uh, adapting to this, maybe a localized, you know, shift from this impact or whatever. But but why is it affecting everyone else? If there's no signs of a nuclear winter, there's no signs of a die-off. There's no signs. It doesn't seem like there's any particular mega problem. Now that's not to say there wasn't any issues because with the 
the multi-directional impact stuff that these guys are finding. They are saying that there was, there definitely would have been really powerful earthquakes. There was uh, firestorms and stuff that started from some of these impacting. Um, so there would be, you would expect some level of impact, certainly in, in some regions, but not globally. They haven't said that any of this was causing a global cataclysm. So no, it, it doesn't fit. And also, like I say, why isn't it happening in other animals? Why don't we see a leap in the adaption of all these other creatures that are having to deal with that environment? Why would it just be this one kind of primate that suddenly gets, you know, all of these bizarre changes, um, you know, that are not seen in any other animal? It just, so then they would have to, that would then have to go back to, obviously those who were saying, well, there's a conventional view and say, well, you know, well, what is that then? Because I'm not seeing that die off. They're not even showing me a dust layer, you know, so what, what really would have been so profound in the environment that it would cause that kind of feedback you know so i I haven't seen anything like that this would be a wonderful then critical thinking exercise uh or even validation exercise for the listeners who want to express some skepticism they could go try to find evidence just you could just go through the the literature on um, extinction events and please do i mean one other last one as well just to be aware of i know i mentioned i think i mentioned it briefly in the book is that there is some initial indications as well of a, a huge object went into the ice in antarctica at this same time um, and that it may have been an object the similar size to the one that caused the Chicxulub event um, and there was a crater has been an anomaly has been detected that suggests a 200 kilometer by 200 kilometer um, hole in the ice from something that at the same time so now you're talking it's really really weird stuff going on and of course the pole shift which i know you mentioned that there's a, a magnetic the last full magnetic pole shift of this planet occurs at 780,000 years ago now that is not going to be completely unrelated and one of the theories is that one of these objects or maybe all of these objects but that something to do with this impact events destabilized the magnetic field of the earth and so that they aren't just coincidental that there is suspected to be a physical, you know, physics mechanism for why this corresponds with these impacts. Um, and that, again, if you've got something that big, it may have, you know, I'm not a physicist, right? I'm not, certainly not a, um, a, a geophysicist, but there, there's some kind of understanding that it could have destabilized the magnetic field of the Earth. I don't know whether that's the big one coming in or whether the fact that it seems to be multiple hits, um, but there it is believed that was linked. And that would have some consequences too, and not necessarily cataclysmic, but those would be global consequences, like allowing in more radiation and stuff like that, which could have some, you know, some role in changes. Um, which is interesting in itself. But, you know, one of the things that really gets me, and, I, and I'll let you fall on this as well, is that why am I having to find this through such a weird esoteric route? Because I've never heard of any of this stuff, really. And I start thinking, why hasn't National Geographic got a special on, you know, 780,000 years ago, the time when everything went completely nuts? Because it just, the more and more I was looking, I just thought, this is like, you know, even if you forget aliens, it just seems like the most interesting period. It's right there at the beginning of the Homo sapiens story, and so you've got us there, witnesses, you've got something, you know, apparently either blowing up in the sky, or even if you argue it, it impacted with material spreading, you know, 10,000 kilometers across the planet, something else going into the ice with massive 200 kilometer hole, a magnetic field reversal, a multi-directional impact. You know, so they're thinking, I've never heard of any of this. Yeah. Like, me why am I having to find out from this weird kind of research? Well, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with like, uh, I think his name is, is it uh, Graham Hancock and... Yeah, Randall Carlson. They from just reading mm -hmm. what they've done, I get the impression that uh, only recently have 
geologists, astronomers, and people who work on the history of life started to feel comfortable doing cross-disciplinary research. Like, it seems like they mm -hmm. were ignoring the stuff mm -hmm. about comet impacts uh, 11,000 years ago until very recently. Like, people didn't want to put mm -hmm. together the pieces. Does that seem right yeah. to you? Yeah, I think so. And also, I know there's been an evasion to cataclysm sort of theories for a long time because, you know, it was a kind of a, a rejection that you know, geologists tended to and maybe still tend to favor things happening very slowly. And that's, you know, geological processes are mostly very slow events. And so there's certainly in days gone by, there was considered to be a bit of a distaste for the idea of rapid events, things like, you know, sudden slips of the Earth's crust or comets that forged out valleys and stuff. You know, so there was this kind, and also the idea, I suppose, like with biblical ideas of great floods, you know, scouring the landscape, you know. Um, so there was a kind of a big pushback and a rejection of cataclysm models in geology. And I think that's maybe just starting to, to undo but I think, like, right, I think that you know Hancock and Carlson and others are kind of stepping into where geologists have feared to tread with having to deal with like, that actually some of what this we're seeing in the landscape and some of these features and these events were cataclysmic. They weren't slow grinding, you know, movements of plates and rivers, and that there were sometimes uh, events which shaped, reshaped the landscape in, in extraordinary ways, very fast. And I, I think that there's been yeah, historically a rejection of because of the links with things like biblical catastrophe stories, that it starts to sound too much like that for, for the comfort of most uh, very, you know, conservative academics who want sort of nothing to do with the idea of, you know, Noah's arcs and things, like that, you know, so I can kind of understand where that comes out of. And again, we're dealing with human beings, you know, that, you know, the academics that um, they're not they're not completely free from that kind of um, contagion of thought that comes out of um, you know past history of being linked to silly things, perhaps, and, and that's I think Graham Hancock's work shows that a lot is that there is a big aversion in archaeology and paleoanthropology to the idea of um, a civilization, you know, or groups of people's civilization springing out of some wellspring somewhere, you know, some Atlantis type place, um, and in fact, so to the point where they're they're quite keen to reject any. Um, evidence that points to say you know like I don't know, take the Egyptians or the Mayans that that their culture had come from somewhere else some lost land somewhere that there's a, a very much a knee-jerk reaction to that like no no here we go that Atlantis rubbish right um, and I think we see a similar thing in geology with these captains like no 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 we'll go back to Veloskovsky and his planets in collision madness you know um, and so there's a history in a lot of these fields where people don't want to go there and that's unfortunate because it's nothing really to do with the evidence or the scientific method or any of that. It's just human beings, biases, you know, worrying about what your colleagues think, uh, harder to publish in a journal, uh, you know, all sorts of other considerations, you know, and not wanting to be that woo scientist that people say, you know, him and his, you know, sounds like he's on about Atlantis now. Um, you know, I, I can understand that. And I see that happen. I'm sure you see it happening. Uh, I've seen that happening. That happens in different fields. I mean, I, I wrote a book on human origins, The Forgotten Exodus, before doing this, which was just dealing really with quite conventional um, material on human origins and evolution. And in that, I, I realised that there is um, there's a lot of dogma, there's a lot of holy cows. Um, you know, I, I tackle the recent out of Africa theory, and I, I, I found some very big holes that you can drive a bus through in the consensus model. Um, and what you find is that it's... The, people don't want to hear it. I had an article that was published on Forbes and it was removed within hours and the journalist was told never to speak to me again. 
And, uh, you know, a quite senior anthropologist from, you know, a big university in the US was saying to me, well, I don't necessarily agree with you, he said, but obviously that should never have happened. He said, what should have happened is my colleagues and people should have argued with you in public and said why they don't agree. The fact that obviously some of them went to the to Forbes and said, you've got to delete this, right? He said, shows something's very wrong here because that should never have happened. The fact that it was good enough to publish, then it should have had it good enough to explain why they were taking it off. Yeah, absolutely. So that's reality. This stuff happens, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, academic politics and then uh, the willingness to censor, to engage in censorship. It's unfortunate, mm-hmm. but part of a reality that we have to mm-hmm. contend with. But I mean, your thoughts? I mean, I know you haven't watched Thomas, but I mean, having listened to you, I know that you have some very legitimate, I think, criticism and feedback. And that's what I was hoping to come back to you and give you a bit more of a... Uh, the boiled down view. I mean, what's your thoughts? I mean, has that answered some of your your questions and queries and your own ponderings on yeah the, the seriousness on it? I really appreciate that. Yeah, you've really addressed. I think the things I said in the uh, the review that I wrote about my concerns about the Australites. I just I don't have the background that you do. So I mean, I would like to I go now and. You know, I'll listen to this interview again and then follow up again and look into the things you said. And um, so that's very interesting. And um, and you are saying that that's where you want to take your research anyway. You're going to focus more yeah. on the, the Australite direction. So um, Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's the one where I just think that, you know, again, even if, we, if it is correct that it's an interstellar object and that we've got pieces of it that you can put in your hand, that in itself is an amazing step forward for science. Yeah, and by the way, people can't get these Australites, can they? Can you go? Can you go out and buy one? Uh, yeah, you can. I've got pieces. I bought them off of a. There's a site in the US. I think Meteorites for sale. Okay. And they have them. So I mean, yeah, it's worth getting yourself a piece of. I was working with a guy yeah. the other day. And he's like, so these could become like super valuable if your theory is accepted. I said, well, yes. I said, I suppose they would be because certainly if they become accept what well, even as an interstellar object if they ever were to be accepted as an alien craft then they're gonna be like diamonds you know um but uh yeah i mean at the moment they are relatively affordable so i mean anyone could uh, go online and, and buy themselves a sample so you know i think get yourself one now just in case it ever does yeah. become really expensive well get yourself an australite and try to talk to it See if it can be. Yeah, I mean, give it a go. I mean, people say with Moldavites that it happens, and the Aboriginals do say that Australites are a, a sacred healing stone, uh, that in some cases they actually eat small pieces to give them shamanic powers. Oh, I might try that. So there you go. Hmm. Well, thanks so much, Bruce. I really appreciate it. This has been incredible. No worries. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that, you know, we could take the opportunity to have that follow up. Um, because yeah, I understand the books, you know, is quite strange, and I don't necessarily go into the depths that uh, answer some of the the scientific conundrums. Obviously, I found more evidence since writing the book. So, I mean, at the time, to be honest, I, I was I decided I had to write a scientific paper about this object, and in doing so, I had to read so many papers that I started to understand a much better, you know, how this object like formed, uh, you know, what it was made of, all this stuff I hadn't really looked into. Um, so. I have a completely different level of knowledge now than I did when I was writing that book. Very good. And we can all look forward to uh, following the Substack and continuing to see where your research takes you. Thank you. Uh, hopefully people will. And yeah, I will do my best to explain it in a way that or you know, is makes sense, is readable, and also, you know, for the, the sources so that there's some solid, you know, support. Awesome. Thanks for coming on the show, Bruce. 
Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Take care.